Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. If you want to understand how people practiced Judaism a thousand years ago, around the time of the Second Temple, your first thought may be to look at some ancient writings. But for Frankel fellow Rick Bonney, textual traditions only tell part of the story. Texts oversimplify the the general picture of how, on a day-to-day basis, people engaged with rituals, engaged with religion. And so this idea of what is called lived religion, I think it's much better to to examine from a material perspective and looking at the the, the archaeological record from a bottom-up approach. Bonnie is an archaeologist and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki in Finland. He looks at things like the ancient remains of synagogues and of mikvaot, or ritual baths, to learn more about how ancient Jews practice their religion day to day. I think that if you look at the, the down-to-earth, let's say, archaeology, it gives a much more nuanced view of how on a day-to-day basis the people engaged with religious activities. For example, Bani studies the structures of ancient synagogues in the Galilee and Golan Heights in northern Israel. So the way these spaces are connected to one another, the way how streets and the synagogues interact with one another, gives you a certain pattern of how people walk through these spaces. For example, studying the ruins of a synagogue in Gamla in the Golan Heights, Bani noted that the walls blocked the entrance of the building from public view. What I meant is that there was no direct straight access into the synagogue, but you had to go in an L-shaped hallway to get into the main building. So... This blocks, in a way, how, how people actually move through it. And it's quite different, for instance, from the synagogues and, and for instance, churches in, in late antiquity, in the 4th to 6th century CE. Those buildings, their entrances were often quite monumental, and like they drew people in. And these earlier synagogues have that not so visible. Bonnie suspects that the blocked main entrance means that these synagogues were not meant as a gathering place or place of worship for the entire community. They were probably much more accessed by a smaller group of people, which I presume is much more the, the local elite, the people who decided upon things in the villages or towns. Um, in much in the same way that they are related to the uh, buleteria, which were the political assembly halls in the in the Hellenistic world of the first, like the last centuries BCE. The interior of the building looks like a place where small groups gathered to discuss local matters. From the inside, you have to think of an assembly hall where you have benches along usually three of its four walls. The benches go up like maybe two or three tiers high. And then uh, you have a column running to hold the roof structure. That's, in most cases, how the, the main assembly hall of the synagogue looks like. Now, it may seem strange that these ancient synagogues were not primarily places of worship, like modern-day synagogues. The fact is that Bonnie and other archaeologists don't really know what went on in these buildings. Other research has shown that only a small percentage of a town's population could fit in a typical synagogue at one time. And textual sources don't provide many specifics. We have a lot of textual evidence, again, from a variety of sources, uh, like uh, Flavius Josephus, like uh, Philo, like the New Testament. But they describe in a very general term that there is a lot of diversity in terms of what could go on in these synagogue buildings. So we actually do not know in each individual synagogue building what exactly went on there. 
Bani also studies ancient ritual baths called mikvaot. A typical ritual bath in the area of modern-day Israel has two very important features. One, it needs to have steps to actually get into the pool, so therefore we often call them stepped pools. And two, it needs to have been plastered to actually hold the water. Ritual baths were filled with water flowing in from the roofs of domestic houses. They were typically located away from the main courtyard, enclosed off spaces that were probably dark and possibly damp. The purpose of the ritual baths, like modern ones today, was for purification. But ironically, the water in the pools was probably anything but pure. We have one thing which is very important with these pools is that they had no water outlet. So the water that came in, often from the rooftops into the pool, it would have been standing there. And because this pool had no water outlets, it would simply be stagnant water. As people know, if you don't regularly clean that water, or if you don't have any movement in that water, it will get dirty and bacteria will spread in it. So it's probably not a very healthy and very hygienic experience to uh, purify, to ritually purify oneself in these pools. Bonnie also studies the plaster used to line the baths to learn more about its composition and origin and what the plaster can tell us about the water quality. Was it locally produced from local materials or was it produced from limestone material brought from somewhere else? And second, we hope to get more information about the, the nature or quality of the water that was once held in it. And finally, Bonnie studies water level fluctuation to learn how the environment may have affected religious practice. The main thing that I'm doing at the moment, we want to have digital 3D reconstructions of these stepped pools and also preferably of the entire household, of the entire house in which these pools functioned. We will make 3D models in a way and then input those models with paleoclimatic data. For example, data relating to the amount of monthly rainfall in ancient Israel at the time. The models will then be able to simulate how much water flowed into ritual baths throughout the seasons and potentially shed light on other questions. How, How much evaporation, for instance, took place in these pools and would people actually be able to bath uh, or to immerse oneself into the water in these pools during summer times. Looking at the history of larger climate changes in the region could reveal even more about how the environment affected religious practices. Paleoclimatic data from lake cores in the Dead Sea and in the Sea of Galilee have shown that the, the period of roughly 200 BCE to 200 CE, so the period of about 400 years, is one of the most rainy and wettest periods in the last four or five thousand years in the region. It's interesting that it's exactly that time when these stepped pools in that region emerged. And it's also when the stepped pools eventually fell out of use at, at the end of that period. The larger purpose of his research, Bonnie says, is to show how archaeology can teach us about how ancient communities functioned and about their daily practices. These revelations from the archaeological record can bring new light to our textual sources. And perhaps we have to go back again to the textual record of that period and look at these textual sources from a new angle. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. 
We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.